Heavenly Father, together we sing the song of Emmanuel, the, the promise and the fulfillment of God with us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for his, for his <laughs> incarnation. Thank you, Father, for his life, his death, and resurrection. Thank you, God, that we can tell of others and help us to do so faithfully in the days ahead. Equip us now with your word as we turn to your scriptures. Father, prepare us so that we would be a people who make the most of this season as we tell others of Emmanuel. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke this morning. Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 19. Luke 20, 9 through 19. We'll be reading uh, the scripture within the sermon this morning. Well, it is December, the second week in December, and Christmas is drawing near. And certainly as Christmas draws near, our thoughts are turning to the things, away from the things of the world and to the birth of God's Son. At least that's what Christians are doing. And it was shortly after Jesus' birth, that Jesus, as we read in the call to worship, was brought to Jerusalem to be dedicated according to the Jewish law. He would be registered as the son of Joseph and Mary. At that same moment, the Spirit also had led the elderly Simeon to meet them there. And when Simeon took baby Jesus into his arms, he then proceeded to say those words in verses 29 and 32. He made the announcement, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. It was an amazing announcement. I don't know if any, many others heard. Maybe it was just for Mary and Joseph. But in this little baby boy that was entrusted to them, this cute little baby bundle of joy, was the Lord's provision of salvation a light to the Gentiles, and the glory of Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at these words of Simeon. It was a tremendous revelation of the Son, full of messianic hope and promise. But then Simeon added additional words. In verse 34, 35, he said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will even pierce your own soul, speaking to Mary, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What a contrast from the great hope of his earlier words to this, these words that would have caused distress to any parent. How can this be? How can the promised Messiah, this little child, be the cause of the fall of many, be a sign to be opposed be a, be a reason for a sword to pierce Mary's soul. Certainly, wouldn't all Israel rejoice and welcome the Christ? Wouldn't they receive and serve him? Who would oppose the Lord's provision of salvation? Who would fall over the light to the Gentiles? Who would want to harm the glory of Israel? As we know, surprisingly, it was Israel's leaders. 
The religious leaders of Israel heard and saw God's son, and yet they always consistently ignored or eventually rejected him. They cared more about upholding their religious traditions and their authority than rightly responding to the Son of God and his authority. As you and I begin to celebrate Christmas, it is easy for us to sometimes get caught up in, in some way similar to what the religious leaders got caught up with, to be more about upholding our Christmas traditions than rightly responding to the authority of the Son of God. In Christmas, remember that God sends his beloved son. The question is, do we get too busy or too self-absorbed to welcome and receive and respond to him, to worship him as he deserves? This morning's passage encourages you and me to welcome the son as one who is sent from the father, one who has comes with the authority of the father, one who comes as a, as a salvation to all peoples, one who comes as a light to the Gentiles, one who comes as the glory of Israel, one who ought to be received. As we look to Luke chapter 20, verse 9 and 19, we find here Jesus in his final week of life on earth. He'd been teaching in the temple daily, and the religious leadership had sent a delegation in the beginning of chapter 20 to challenge his authority. And their question basically was in verse 3. Who gave you this authority to do the things that you're doing? To come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey to the praise of the people, the messianic praise of the people. Who are you to come into the temple? What authority do you have to cleanse the temple? What authority do you have to come in here and start teaching like you are one of the scribes? Where do you get this authority? Who gave it to you? Who do you think you are? And Jesus, of course, sees through their rebellious hearts and answers their question with his own question, which they ignored. But in this passage, Jesus answers their question with a parable. You want to know what authority I have? Want to know who sent me? I will tell you in this parable. This is known as the parable of the vine growers, sometimes called the parable of the wicked tenants. And at the end of the parable, Luke tells us in verse 19 that they understood, that is the, the particular religious leaders understood that he spoke this parable against them. This final parable in Luke, this is the last one, serves as a warning that we all do well to heed. Not only at Christmas, but throughout all the year. It encourages us to respond rightly, to understand the authority of Jesus as the Son of God. And so as we're going to look at this parable, we're going to see four parts of this parable of the vine growers that urge us, even warn us, to receive and welcome rightly the Son of God. All right, so that's where we're going to go. Four parts of this parable. Basically, we're just going to tell the parable, and it basically will teach itself. All right. So first of all, the first part of the parable is the sowing of the vineyard in verse 9. The sowing of the vineyard in verse 9. Let's read verse 9. And he began to tell the, par the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out uh, to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. Long time. Jesus tells this parable to the people in the temple, including his disciples. 
the religious leaders, as well as the crowd of worshipers. There's all sorts of people in the temple. It's the Passover, remember. And as he often did, Jesus once again uses something from common everyday life to teach a spiritual truth. We call these parables. And in this case, Jesus uses the imagery of a vineyard. Verse 1, Jesus tells of a man who planted a vineyard and then rented or leased it to some vine growers. And this is a common thing. Uh, people who own land, would, they wouldn't be able to uh, take care of the vineyard all by themselves, so they would hire people, lease it out, and those people would then tend it, and they would receive a portion of the, the harvest, but they would give back a portion to the landowner. And many of the vineyards were owned by people, these people, these landowners who lived elsewhere. And so these vineyard, vineyard workers, they would basically come, these vine growers came and did most of the work. And Jesus' description of the sowing of this vineyard, recall the wording then uh, uh, of, I, of Isaiah chapter 5. Then when he talks about this man planting a vineyard, it reminds people of Isaiah chapter 5. In fact, uh, Mark's parallel will use a lot of the, the wording from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Uh, is that in Isaiah 5, 1 to 7, is known as the song of God's vineyard. And there the Lord carefully had planted a vineyard and expected it to produce good grapes, but it only produced worthless ones. So in response, the Lord promised to destroy that vineyard. We see in Isaiah 5, 7, this word, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. The similarity between the song of God's vineyard and the parable of the, of this, uh, of the vine grows here confirms that Jesus is speaking about Israel. He's talking about the nation. The vineyard that is here in this parable is the nation of Israel. The man is God. He's the one who, who planted the vineyard. He's the one who chose Israel and set it apart for himself. And therefore, these vine growers then are symbolic of the religious leaders of Israel, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. But whereas Isaiah's song of the vineyard is about the failure of Israel as a whole, Jesus' parable is about the failure of Israel's leaders. See, Israel's, Israel is God's vineyard, and the religious leaders were given the responsibility to care for Israel on behalf of God. But as time went on, they began to see Israel as basically as their vineyard. They forgot a very important fact that Israel did not belong to them, but to the Lord. They were not the owners of the vineyard, but God was. And their concern was, is more about, it became more about the authority, uh, their, their own authority, rather than uh, anything else. And when Jesus started acting like he had authority by cleansing the temple, by teaching God's truth, they wanted to know, well, who gave you this authority? But if they had remembered that Israel belonged to God, then they would have responded quite differently to God's Son, who is the owner of the vineyard. So many troubles in the church can be traced to a failure of leaders. Leaders to remember who owns the church. When we think of this church, San Francisco Bible Church, whose church is it? I know sometimes we say, oh, that's Pastor Henry's church or, uh, or so-and-so's church. You might even say, that's my church or our church. But really, this is God's church. Biblically speaking, this is God's church. 
You look far and wide, you will find it hard-pressed to find any time in the scriptures when the word church is given any possessive pronoun other than that which belongs to God. It's not our church. It's not my church in the Bible. It's not your church. And the same principle even applies to the ministries that you and I serve in. Whose ministry is it? Is it God's ministry? It's not your ministry. It's not my ministry. You see, it's, it's his ministry. It's helpful to think like that. Because when we think of this church as my church, or we think of this ministry as my ministry, then what happens is that my opinions and my thoughts about how it should run, be run, matter the most. And I, I said, this is my church, therefore my opinions matter. This is my ministry, therefore my thoughts, my, my, uh, my comments are important. But when, I, when someone else thinks in a similar, similarly, that it's their church or their ministry too, and they have different opinions than you do, then you have the making of a conflict that leads to division. However, when we remember that it's God's church, it's God's ministry, they'll be mindful to seek and follow God's thoughts about how it should be run. See, these Israelite leaders forgot that the vineyard Israel was God's vineyard, not their vineyard. And they were more very concerned about protecting their ownership of the vineyard. We need to learn instead to, as those who recognize that this ministry, this church belongs to God, to be people who prayerfully and humbly seek God's direction for all that we do within it. Now, the second part of the parable is this. That is the sending of the servants. The sending of the servants in verses 10 to 12. Look at the scripture with me, verse 10 to 12. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave. And they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third. And this one also they wounded and cast out. See, when it was time for the harvest, the owner sent one of his servants his slaves to collect the rent, the proceeds, some of the proceeds of the harvest. And this slave, this slave went on behalf of the owner of the vineyard. But by this time, because a long time had passed, the vine growers had wanted to had started seeing the, the vineyard as belonging to them. And they had wanted to keep the heart all of the harvest for themselves. So they, they treated the slave of the owner poorly. It says they beat him. They sent him away at the end. They, can you imagine the, the audacity of these vine growers? They beat up this poor slave. It's not even his, it's his vineyard, but they beat him up and they sent him back to the owner empty-handed. You know, it's as if you worked at a, at a store or something like that, you know, maybe a coffee shop or something like that. And, you, you know, you do all the work. You, you're a worker there and, you, you know, you stock the shelves. You, you know, you might make the produce. You, you sell, work the cash register, etc. But when uh, daily, when the when the uh, armored truck comes to collect the, the money for that day's um, for that day's uh, <laughs> profits, you then beat up the brings armored guards and then send them away empty-handed back to the bank. What do you think would happen to you? Well, you probably won't get very far. They'll probably shoot you. But anyways, you'd be arrested and terminated for sure. And that's what exactly these vine growers deserved. That's what they were doing. They were beating the slave of the owner who was, had a right to collect a portion of the, of the harvest. But notice what happens. And it's amazing to Israelites as it is to us. 
In verse 11, the owner sends a second slave. It's <laughs> the vine growers, they deserve immediate punishment and arrest. That's what would happen today, for sure. But this owner sends them another slave, and he gives, gives them another chance. Sadly, they respond even worse. Instead of just beating, up, uh, beating him up, they treat him shamefully as well. The, mean, the verb shamefully means, treat shamefully means to dishonor or to insult. Somehow they insulted him. Maybe they shaved off his hair or something like that. Or uh, they treat him in a very shameful manner. But he, and the end result, he is sent away empty-handed. But the owner doesn't stop there. He sends a third slave in verse 12. And this one they would wound and cast out. The word wound means, is the word from which we get traumatized from. They traumatized him. They so greatly beat him. They so greatly harmed him that he was traumatized. There's almost a picture as they cast him out. means he's to the point where he can't even walk on his own. So they just take him body and, and they just throw him out of the vineyard. Mark's account tells us that he is so wounded that apparently they killed him. They killed the third slave. What's more, Matthew, Mark's account tells us that other slaves are sent. The owner sends not just three, but more, in fact, in this parable. And the response each time from the, uh, from the uh, vine growers is the same. Beatings, killings, stonings, sending away empty-handed. These vine growers are given many opportunities to repent and do that which they were hired to do. What patience God shows. The servants in this parable are symbolic of the prophets that God had sent to the nation of Israel throughout her history. And although God sent Israel many prophets, the nation under her leaders rejected God's servants. They never responded to God's servants. They never responded with obedience. But by rejecting God's servants, Israel consistently rejected God. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 says basically similar words before he is stoned to death in Acts chapter 7 verse 51 to 53. He says this right before he speaks. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. You see, that's the picture of these slaves being beaten, being brewed, is, is basically the picture of Israel rejecting the prophets of God. And, and how they treated the servants of God, the prophets of God, ultimately showed how they treated God himself. I love what Martin Luther writes and comments about uh, this particular parable. If I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. Martin Luther, and of course, he said it in a very holy and sanctified manner. Strong words, but no doubt we would probably think the same. But God in his great patience kept sending and sending and sending his prophets to Israel. In the parable of the vine growers, the owner of the vineyard just kept sending his servants until there was no one else to send except one. And this is the third part of the parable, the sending of the son. In verse 13 to 15. Look at the scriptures with me. Verse 13. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him 
so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. The vineyard owner basically asked a question, uh, what shall I do? How's he going to respond? And if we answered it, we would have said, well, just send the police and arrest those criminals. But that's not what happens with God. The vineyard owner chooses to send one more person. This time, not a slave or a servant, but a beloved son. Mark's account indicates that this is the owner's only son. There's only one. He intentionally, willfully sends his only son to these wicked vine growers, hoping that these vine growers would respect his son. Because the son in those days, and every, even sons our day, would have the same authority, the rights and privileges of the father. This beloved son represents Jesus himself, of course. The phrase is used only one other time in the Gospel of Luke in, in chapter 3, verse 22. And there it was on the occasion of Jesus' baptism. And we read there that the Holy Spirit descended upon him, that is Jesus, in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of a heaven. This was God the Father's voice. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. Jesus is God's beloved son. Jesus is the one in whom God is well pleased with. Jesus is the one whom God sends to the vine growers, to the religious leaders of Israel, hoping, giving them one more chance that they would respect him. That God would send his son to those who deserve his wrath points to his great love. We're reminded of John 3.16, of course, for God so loved the world that he gave, that he sent his only begotten son. See, the sending of God's son into the world is the demonstration of God's love for sinners, for people who are his enemies, for people who reject him, for all of us, for all of us were his enemies. All of us did not turn away from him. And for Israel, sadly, instead of respecting the son, the vine growers here, the, these, the leaders, religious leaders, conspire against him. They thought that since uh, it was common that day that uh, inheritance would pass on uh, to tenants if no heirs existed, they said, well, hey, let's just kill the son. And then it'll pass on to us. So verse 15 tells us that they, they killed the son. They cast him out. They threw his body out of the vineyard. Jesus was predicting here his own fate at the hands of the religious leaders of Israel. And just as the owner's son is killed, so also God's son will be killed. Though sent to Israel and her leaders as the final word from God, they rejected him as well by killing him. We read earlier in chapter 19, verse 47 of Luke, that the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. They were already trying to kill him. God kept sending Israel his prophets and then God sent his son because he loved them with a loyal love. He had chosen the nation, he had chosen Abraham and made a promise to him that God would always keep. 
And throughout the history of Israel and Abraham's descendants, he would keep calling them with his, with his uh, prophets, to calling them to repentance and faith. And he, and he does this consistently and still today for all those whom he loves. A few weeks ago, I was like, Two weeks ago, I had an opportunity to just share my salvation testimony once again. And as I was telling you, I was just reflecting upon, oh man, how God was so faithful to me. I was a sinner. I was never seeking God at all. But God began in his mercy to, to, and out of his love to seek, to send people to seek me out for his glory, for his, to know him. God sent my mom to me. She was a believer and she had been going back to church. God sent my cousins. They came and immigrated from, uh, from the Philippines and they started going to that same church and they invited me. God sent my classmate, my buddy Joe, in my calculus class and he was going to the same church and he invited me to the church. And then when I finally stepped in, the church, God sent the pastor of that church, my pastor, who faithfully week in, week out preached the gospel to me. And then God sent even one more a random dude passing out tracks in Red Square at the University of Washington who handed me a track that one day that just brought everything that I'd been hearing together. And God sent them all because of his patient love toward me. And last but not least, God sent his beloved son for me. Brothers and sisters, God sent his beloved son for you as well. And God has probably, very likely, sent many other people to call you to faith and repentance. I hope you've already responded to that, to that offer. But if you have not, I invite you today. What greater time of the year than to respond in saving faith and to repentance of sins and, Jesus, and turn to Jesus Christ than this month? Will you not... Place your faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins? Will you not submit to the Lord, confess him as Lord, and follow him? For God sent his beloved son for you. In verse 15 and 19, we observe the last part of this parable, and that is the, the shattering of the wicked. I call it the shattering of the wicked. Let's read the last few verses of this passage. Last, in the middle of verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, May it never be! But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. Jesus asked a rhetorical question in this parable, what will the vineyard owner do to the vine growers? What, are what will he do? In Matthew's account, by the way, some in the crowd actually reply. They, they offer a reply. And Jesus here gives that same answer. That is, the answer is, what will the, vineyard, what will the owner do to the vine growers? He will destroy them. 
He will destroy the wicked vine growers. And then he will take the vineyard and give it to others. It is a foretelling of judgment upon these religious leaders who had rejected the Christ. And even more significantly, it's not beyond just the judgment upon the religious leaders, but it's the, it's the response that this kingdom, this, that this vineyard would then be given into the care of others. And it is to that comment that all the people, when they heard it, that basically they were thinking the promises given to Israel, the, the choice place of Israel, is now going to be given to someone else? And they all responded, may it never be. May it never be. By the way, the, these were fulfilled uh, in, initially in, in AD 70. The religious leaders who rejected Jesus Christ were all destroyed along with all of Jerusalem and Israel. When, when Titus entered Jerusalem and destroyed the city, its, 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 its walls, its temple, and the religious leaders as well as, and all the religious system was basically brought to an end. And all the people were scattered. And as for the vineyard, it was taken away from the Jewish leaders and given then to the apostles and eventually the church. In Matthew's parallel account, Jesus says in Matthew 21, 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. See, what Israel is, it is a nation. But what it represents on earth is, the, is, a, is a promise of the kingdom of God. And because of Israel's disobedience, God, we learn later on in Romans chapter 11, for instance, from the Apostle Paul, that God will temporarily take away the, the promises and blessings of the kingdom of God and he will give them to Gentiles, to the church. A temporary period of time where the church, mostly Gentiles, will receive the blessings of the promises of the kingdom. And they will then respond unlike Israel, by producing the fruits, fruits of repentance, that is obedience and submission and worship of the Lord God. Of course, even this, and though they don't fully understand it, they just know simply, may it never be. But Jesus responds to that, that, that strong response by pointing to the scriptures that such was foretold. In verse 17 of our text, Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22, to explain the rejection of the Son. May it never be. Well, this is what Scripture's promised. In, but in Psalm 118, 22, instead of vine growers rejecting the Son, we have builders rejecting the stone. This verse prophesies basically the rejection of the Messianic King. But though there is rejection, the verse also predicts the triumph of the stone. This stone would then, that is rejected by the builders, that is, the religious leaders, would eventually become the chief cornerstone. It's, it's the stone that would be placed at the, in the foundation of a building. It would be the first stone laid so that basically it would set uh, the, the line of the remaining stones of the building to the right, to the left, and straight up so that this bu the building would be square and solid. The Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, would actually quote this verse, uh, Psalm 118, 22, that is. 
and there identify the religious leaders as the builders and Jesus as the chief cornerstone. So having shown that the rejection of the Son would, must take place according to the Scripture, Jesus then warns of the judgment upon those who reject him in verse 18. And two, two things are stated about this judgment, both taken from Old Testament allusions. The first is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14 and 15. We don't have time to go into those various texts, but I'm just going to simply give you the verse. You can go look it up yourself. But the first is from Isaiah 8, 14 and 15 about those who, that those who reject the Son will be broken to pieces. Those who fall or, or stumble over the rock that is in unbelief will be judged. They will be broken to pieces. There's going to be a destruction that takes place upon them. That's promised. But the second, uh, 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 the second truth about this judgment it comes from an allusion to Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 and 45. That one day... The stone will fall, this stone, this prophecy in Daniel, will fall in judgment upon all the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus is saying here that there is going to be a judgment upon the wicked who reject the Son because the Son is no less than the promised Messiah, the Messianic King, the one who, according to Daniel, will come and shatter all the kingdoms of the earth and whose kingdom would be eternal. See, there, the religious leader's question was, where's your authority? Who is your authority? And Jesus is by answering, by quoting and making these allusions, he's saying, my authority is from God the Father. His authority is from being king. His authority is from being the son of God. And they reject him at their own peril. All who reject him will be shattered in judgment. Therefore, the warning for, the people, for those who heard in that day and the warning for us today is that let everyone who has ears to hear of this repent and respond rightly to the Son. To repent of sin and believe in Him and submit to Him. Sadly, the religious leaders, according to verse 19, respond by doing exactly what the Scripture prophesied, by seeking to kill Him. And so, therefore, let us be people who don't, don't respond like the religious leaders, don't reject the king, but be people who receive the king, who respond rightly in submission to the king, to the authority that he has as the son of God. And in conclusion, as we begin to celebrate Christmas, I leave you, want to leave you with three questions just kind of for you to reflect, uh, may discuss in small groups or among your family. Number one is this, are you more excited or focused about Christmas than Christ? Are you more excited about Christmas? Hopefully you're excited about Christmas because of Christ. But you're more excited about Christ than Christmas. That even if you didn't have all the Christmas traditions, if you didn't have all the Christmas gifts, all the Christmas lights, all the Christmas trees, all the Christmas activities that we do in the church, you would still have Christ and that would be more than enough. That would fill your heart with joy and warmth that far outweighs the, the, the Christmas traditions. I know that's hard for kids to get, but it's even hard for adults as well, isn't it? Think about that. Question number two, how will you intentionally remember and worship God's beloved son? God loved his son, and still God sent his son. Is that not amazing? 
And he knew that they would kill his son. This one who died for us is worthy of our worship, is worthy of being remembered. How will you and I intentionally remember and worship him this season? Thirdly, how does your life reflect either a submission to his authority or rejection of his authority? Make no mistake, Jesus has authority. It's authority from God the Father. But Lazarus says, and we can say that he's the son of God, but how does our life reflect our belief about the Son of God? Does our life reflect submission to his authority? Does your life reflect that? How? Or does your life reflect rejection of his authority? But think about how. And if it's the latter, then I, I pray that you would repent and turn from that and confess it to the Lord, ask for his forgiveness and, and renew your uh, a walk in obedience and submission to him. For God has sent his beloved son. And when we honor and obey the son, we honor and obey God. Let us respond to the good news of Christmas when the child that was born to Mary was the Lord's provision of salvation, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. He is the son of God and he is our great God. Let us pray and seek to glorify his name this season and always. Let's respond with a final song.